You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Morning, church. My name is Duane. Uh, today I'll be reading today's scripture from Philippians 1, uh, 12 to 30. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is in my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is clear, sign to them of their destruction, for your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks, Duane. Good morning, everyone. Shini and Kwaila. Impressive. Wonderful to be here, to be able to speak the word of God to you in the book from the book of Philippians, which is a book that's really close to my heart. I really enjoy this uh, text because it speaks so much of joy in the face of adversity. Um, And today in particular, we're going to be looking at Paul, who's in a sticky spot. But before we get to that, I want to tell you a short story, or maybe ask a question. And, And it's a question about death. When was the last time you gave thought to your death, to death itself as a concept? Probably not recently, probably not until it's been provoked by some health scare, or someone close to you passing. And the reality is that you probably don't give much thought to death. Over the Christmas holiday, 
We were in South Africa as a family and we witnessed a violent death. And on the side of the road there was a body lying and it was graphic and it was quite disturbing. And at that point I thought to myself, life is short. Life can be ended in a whisker, in just a moment. And I kept thinking, what is my purpose? What am I living for? What is it that I'm doing with my time? What legacy will I leave? A kind of mini middle-aged crisis right there in that very moment. And these are huge questions that I think all of us should consider. Huge questions which, in fact, the Word of God provides so much detail and relevance on. And in fact, Philippians 1 speaks to these exact questions. What is life? What is death? Paul himself is a man who is contemplating this in the midst of very difficult circumstances. Let's look at his context. He starts this passage that we've read, had read to us today by saying, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Well, what has happened to Paul? You might remember that we went through the book of Acts last year, and the book of Acts is a story of Paul's travels. It's a story of Paul undergoing numerous beatings, being left for dead, having to deal with death threats and face numerous trials, being falsely accused, imprisoned for two years over here and there, eventually having to appeal to Caesar and taking a trip to Rome where he was shipwrecked and underwent all kinds of hardships until eventually he arrives in Rome, is under house arrest. And it is believed that Philippians as a book is written from this perspective, a man, Paul, imprisoned in Rome again, in a position of difficulty, possibly even facing death. But in all this suffering and uncertainty about the future, what we do see is a man who is so focused on his purpose, and not just focused on purpose, but rejoicing in such difficult circumstances. So this passage gives us an insight into the mind of Paul, but it also gives us a model, a model of the heart of a faithful Christian in the face of adversity. The model of the heart of a faithful Christian in the face of adversity. Paul had a clear single-mindedness when it came to his purpose in life. And sometimes when we're faced with the potential of death, it really does, like a laser beam, focus our intentions and our, our thoughts about what are we really doing? What is life really about? So I want to jump to the middle of this text, which I feel really is the fulcrum around which this whole text is based. And it is this idea of verse 20 to 21, where he says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that... With full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Remember where he is writing this. He's in prison. He's in a difficult situation. But he's reminded of his singular purpose. His eager expectation, he says, is to honor Christ. This is his supreme goal, which should be the supreme goal of every Christian. In everything, Christ is to be honored. And the Greek word for honored here is megalino, which, which means that Christ will be enlarged in us. In other words, that he would be magnified, that he would be made more of, that he would be the full picture of our life, 
that we would become less and he would become more that all the greatness of his richest dimensions would be shown through our lives Christ would be magnified in our lives think of this as a single goal for each and every one of you who proclaims Christ as Lord that he would be magnified in life and death in all circumstances And then Paul moves on in verse 21 to write these famous words. He says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Life and death are again related to verse 20, speaking of magnifying life, magnifying Christ and life and death. And here he says, In life and death, Christ is to be magnified. Christ is most magnified when to us life is for Christ. Christ is most magnified in death when to us, for us, death is gain. And this begs the question, what is life to you? For to me, to live is, fill in the blank. What is life to you? Is it work? Is it pleasure? Is it happiness, family, recognition, riches? If we, like Paul, can say that for me to live is Christ, it puts everything into perspective. Instead of being about things that I mentioned earlier, life is about magnifying Christ through these things. We choose to magnify Christ in our work, in our pleasures, in our family, in our recognitions, with the use of our riches, our wealth, our time. Because all of those who have come to faith in Jesus... There is a call to discipleship upon each one of us, and that is to die to self and live for Christ. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified in Christ. This is Paul talking. I have died on the cross with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We can give ourselves completely to Jesus because he gave himself completely for us at the cross. And this really is the impetus behind which Paul is saying, to me to live is Christ, which is the same impetus for us. For me to live is Christ is because Christ has lived and died for me. He has fulfilled the Father's purpose, the Father's call to bring many sons and daughters into his kingdom. The next question is, what is death? To you. To Paul, death was gain. Death can only be gain if to live is Christ. Only Christ makes dying gain, otherwise, it would be loss. It would be complete loss. It would be the loss of everything. It would be the loss of your wealth, of your riches, of your family, of your life itself. But if Christ is life, then death is gain. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous British preacher, once pointed out, verse 21 is not only a statement about Paul's experience, but it's a standard of judgment which confronts us with the most thorough test of our Christian faith. Every person who professes Christ as Savior must grapple with this one question. Can I honestly say, for me to live is Christ? And if I can say yes then I've answered that fundamental question, what about death? It is for me, if for me to live is Christ, then for me to die is gain. This really does put life and death into perspective. It's a profound thought. And with this being true for us, it helps us 
endure all manner of difficulties we might face. And this is where Paul finds himself, in immense difficulty, but joyful within because his purpose is clear. His life and death were centered on magnifying Jesus, on seeing Jesus enlarged in his life. But still, he stood at a fork in the road. His, presence for, sorry, his preference for life or for death was a difficult decision for him. If we read on in verse 22, Paul says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Like the story of the young child in Sunday school who listens intently when the teacher talks about the beauties of heaven. And the teacher said, "Then raise your hands if you would like to go to heaven. And every hand shot up, except for little Johnny. And she said, Johnny, why don't you want to go to heaven? And he replied, Mom just baked an apple pie for me this afternoon. <laughs> Similarly, Paul is in a similar conflict. Even though he deeply desires to be with Jesus in heaven, he felt it necessary to remain behind on account of those that God had placed in his life. He knew that he would continue to live, and that meant one thing for him. A fruity apple pie for dinner? No. Fruitful labor. Fruitful labor. Living for Christ means fruitful labor. Fruitful service. Let me take you back. We've started with this broad goal in life of magnifying Christ in life and in death. But now we see a narrower view. Marrow, magnifying Christ in life. What does it look like? Faithful service. It's a service that honors, that magnifies Christ. It's a service that we do to, not to earn God's salvation. It's not full-time ministry, but it's fruitful labor in response to what God has called us to do. What he has already done for us through the gospel and prepared for us now that our life is in Jesus. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says we are his workmanship. He is the master mind behind it all. God has worked, created us in Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Living for Christ means fruitful labor. And if we narrow this focus even more from magnifying Christ in all of life to fruitful labor for Christ, well, the next focus, what is this fruitful labor that we see in Scripture? What is this fruitful labor that we should be giving ourselves to? We're going to be looking at this from a common, uh, from a high-level perspective because there is, of course, fruitful labor that each and every one of us has been called to that is particular to each and every one. But what have we all been called to in terms of fruitful labor? And for Paul here, it's clear it was the advance of the gospel. He wanted fruitful labor of Christ to be advance of the gospel. And I believe this is true for each and every one of us. Remember, Paul is writing to people facing persecution. They are separated from him. And he's modeling to them, what does fruitful service of Christ look like in whatever situation we might face? But we are tempted to relegate Jesus to just a portion of our lives. For example, we might say, for me to live is Christ, but only on Sundays and maybe see Jesus in a few conversations with Christian people during the week. 
in brackets. Paul is blowing that whole concept out of the water. He's saying, no, for me to live is Christ. The whole of life is to be lived for Christ with the fruitful service of advancing the gospel. Especially in this context when life is difficult. He's modeling fruitful Christian service in the face of difficult circumstances. But so often we are tempted to retreat in difficulties and not engage with any form of service, not engage in advancing the gospel. We might become full of self-pity and lick our wounds. And this is not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about seeing life differently, even in difficulties. How can we fruitfully serve God? How can we advance the gospel? And I want to look at this passage and look at three different areas that are brought up through this text. These are areas in which we can serve God faithfully by advancing the gospel. And the one is in mission. From verse 12 to 18, we see Paul focused on mission while in jail. Secondly, in ministry, our ministry one to another, our life in the church, advancing the gospel in each other's lives. And finally, in our manner of living, which we see in verse 27 to 30. So let's start with in mission, verse 12 to 18. I want to read this text again, focusing on this idea of the mission of Paul whilst in jail. He says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial God and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are now much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Paul is in prison, but what's on his mind? It's his mission. He wants to advance the gospel. He's not overwhelmed by the situation because he's wrapped up in this purpose of magnifying Christ through fruitful service by advancing the gospel. And so how does his life in this prison advance the gospel? Well, three ways. Number one, people are aware of his stand for Jesus. He says that the whole imperial God and the rest know that his imprisonment was for Jesus. The imperial guard or the, the crack troops for Hitler. Hitler. Gosh, did I just say that? Caesar. <laughs> Caesar's crack troops. Remember, he appealed to Caesar. So he is under Caesar's care. In a sense, the imperial guard have been sent to look after him. He is preaching the gospel to these people. They are coming to faith. The rest, these are the people who have been serving him who are in his proximity, they are seeing his testimony for Jesus. Paul could have easily wallowed in self-pity. After all, he was going through some very difficult circumstances, but he doesn't. He's on mission. He's preaching the gospel. He's using his opportunity to testify to Jesus. We know from this text that his imprisonment was not from some crime he committed. It is for Christ, and everyone knew that. They all knew he was in prison for Christ, his life was a testimony to who Christ was and his love and devotion towards him. 
And this speaks to our endurance of suffering. How do we endure difficulty? In our suffering, we have the opportunity to advance the gospel. Remember this, a true test, the true test of our faith is how we respond in the face of difficulty. It asks this question, is Jesus our life? Is Jesus our highest treasure, our ultimate gain? These will be called into question. But, but if in our struggles, like Paul, we can show trust in God's promises, we can carry his peace to calm our anxieties, we can speak of God's faithfulness and goodness to sustain us, we can proclaim the grace of the gospel of Jesus, we are advancing the gospel. A good example is a friend that my family um, and I know very well who has gone through an, a very difficult time. Her husband left her for another woman and it was a shock to her and to the, the kids. just happened. But what has happened in this time is that she has found God. She is alive to him. In her deepest pain, she is reaching out and finding God sustains her. In her darkest time, she is a witness to what Christ is doing in her life. And she doesn't know it, but she is advancing the gospel. She is declaring her need for Jesus and advancing the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of how we can use suffering and see suffering be used for the advance of the gospel. How else is the gospel being advanced by Paul? Well, we see that people are freshly confident to preach the gospel. These are regular church folk. This is you and me. They have become more confident to go out there and preach the word of God. They can see that Paul is now in jail for his love for Jesus, that he is there for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, and they are emboldened. You might think, well, if Perch was locked up and sent to Changi prison for preaching the gospel, would you be emboldened? Probably not. I don't think we'd be running on the streets and preaching the gospel more boldly because Perch has been put in jail. That would be scary. We wouldn't want to have the same fate. But imagine if we hear news that from Changi prison, people are coming to know the Lord. That Perch is preaching up a storm and there's a revival going on. I think we'll be emboldened. We'll be emboldened to pray. We'll be emboldened to get involved, to preach the gospel. There will be somewhat of a contagious effect because gospel courage has a contagious effect. And I want to encourage us. Let's show gospel courage in our own mission, in the own areas of influence where we have the opportunity to advance the gospel by encouraging people to go forth and proclaim and show the gospel of Christ. There's a third group that we see in this text. There's people who are preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. Who are these people? We don't have a lot of information, but we can assume these are gospel workers who are in competition with Paul. They're looking for more followers. Perhaps they're jealous of Paul's ministry, and they see this as an opportunity. Paul's been locked up. Might as well go and preach the gospel and find more followers to follow me. Paul could have got really upset. He could have really berated them in this letter and let them, let them know how he felt about them. But he doesn't do that. What is his response? He says, as long as Christ is proclaimed, he can rejoice. 
It fills him with joy because Christ is being proclaimed and therefore magnified. He continues to be a model for us. He's facing division, hard words being said against him, people who are looking for to do evil against him, but he can rejoice even though they're intense or evil. Christ is being proclaimed and for that, for him, this brings him great joy. His context shows us that even in suffering, we can be fruitful. There's always the opportunity for the advance of the gospel to magnify Christ. What might fruitful service in your situation of difficulty look like? What does fruitful service in the area of mission for you look like? We are all placed in particular areas of influence. Our workplace, our family, our, st- our schools, our universities, our friendships. These are our, our areas of influence where fruitful service can take place. Let's move to a second category, the category of ministry. In verse 22 to 26, Paul has said, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Remember, he was at that fork. He preferred to rather die and be with Christ. He knew that death would be gain for him. All the suffering, all the hardship, all the pain he had been going through would be gone, and he would receive Christ. He would receive his greatest prize, Jesus. He was not afraid of death. But above all of this, he chooses to remain in the flesh on your account. Those three words, on your account, are oozing with love for the church. We see even earlier in chapter 1 how he, has, he yearns with them for great affection. Paul is a man of great love towards the people of the church. So much so that he was willing to postpone the glories of heaven. That he could serve God in fruitful labor towards his people in ministry. And what was the focus of his ministry? If I read on from verse 25 to 26. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Three things. Fruitful labor in ministry is concerned for their progress in the faith. The Greek word for progress in the faith is the same word as advance of the gospel. Progress of the faith is the advance of the gospel in people's hearts. It is the growth of the faith of the believer. We want to see people's faiths growing. And we should be making not just progress in our own faith, but at the same time, we should be helping others to make progress in their faith. Scripture never describes faith as a stagnation. It is always an upward trajectory towards Christ-like growth in our spiritual lives. And God has put each and every one of us in each other's lives to see that happen. And we see this happening with Paul. Yes, he has a desire to minister to the church, but we also see that the church is lifting up prayers to support and strengthen him in verse 19, which causes him to rejoice. And this is one of the very practical ways we can help one another to progress in the faith. Pray. Pray for one another. Do we pray for this church? Do we pray for the people in our CGs? Do we pray for the community that God has brought into our lives? Lifting them up. 
This is beautiful picture of of prayer and help being intertwined in verse 19. The prayers of the saints are a precious thing. Think of your own life. How is your progress in the faith? How are you helping others to progress in the faith? This is not just true for Paul's ministry, but for all of ministry that our aim, our goal, should be to see people advancing in their faith by seeing and savoring Jesus for all he is, in his beauty and his glory. A second thing we see is the joy in the faith. How many of us think about the joy in the faith? The book of Philippians is known as the epistle of joy. We see a man who is in imprisonment. There there should not be a place for joy, but yet he is full of joy. He is rejoicing again and again and again. He has every reason to be upset by this world and the injustice that he is facing, but he's not. And he wants believers to experience the same joy, a joy that is steadfast in their circumstances, a joy that is centered on God's goodness and his kindness towards them through Jesus. It's a joy that's focused on the advance of God's kingdom wherever he might find himself. And he wants them to experience that same joy. How are your joy levels in the faith? Does your faith bring you joy? Our walk with God can be a joyful one. He is the source of all joy. The Psalms say that in his presence is fullness of joy. He is the connection to what joy is. Fruitful labor is serving others to find the fruit of joy in their faith. And that joy comes from a lively, engaged relationship with Jesus. There is so much joy to be had in knowing and fellowshipping with Jesus. And Paul knows that. And one beautiful thing that God has given us to bring us joy is each other. And Paul alludes to this. He says, I will remain and continue with you for your joy in the faith. His presence will bring them great joy. Our presence will bring us great joy. I received a letter this week from someone which brought me great joy in my faith. How can we send a message of faith, of prayer, of love, of kindness, or speak, share a coffee that brings joy to see people's faith? This is what ministry which is fruitful looks like. Finally, he wants them to glory in Christ. These are such beautiful ambitions, such noble ambitions. To magnify Christ in life by fruitful labor in ministering to others that they may experience progress and joy and see the glory of Jesus in their walk with him. What a beautiful goal for all of our ministry. That we magnify Jesus in ministry by seeking others' progress and joy in the faith to his glory. And the final area of how we can advance the gospel is in verse 27 to 30, in manner of living. And I'll read these last few verses, which says from verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, One mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 
engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. These are strong words. Strong instruction to the church of Philippi. How do we magnify Christ through our manner, our manner of living? Paul has already shown us what it looks like modeled in terms of mission and ministry, but in our manner of living. This is not just for the Philippian church. It's for us at ECP. Our manner of life needs to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Our proclamation of the gospel, our mission, our ministry of the gospel needs to be lived out from the basis of a life worthy of the gospel. This is the ground upon which we go out on mission and minister to our friends and family. So what does this mean for a manner of life to be worthy of the gospel? Well, inherent in the Greek construction of the sentence is this idea of citizenship. It can be read, conduct yourselves as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. This would have been very apt for the Philippian uh, community who were a colony of Rome. They carried Roman citizenship. They knew the benefits of being a part of a colony, of being a Roman citizen. And here we see that Christians are spiritually citizens of another kingdom. And the gospel is the essence of that kingdom. Grace and mercy and love have made, made us citizens of that kingdom. And grace and mercy and love are the manner in which life is to be lived worthy of the gospel in the world around us. And to live lives worthy of the gospel, we are called by Paul to live in such a manner. But he sums it up in two words, which he goes into chapter 2 to speak about. He says, be united. Be united. Such a strong emphasis on unity of the church. This worthy life mentioned by Paul is a very vulnerable one. It's an exposed one. It will come under attack from, tech, from, from forces outside from the world, from those who oppose Christianity, but it also comes from within. We've already seen rival competition. We've already seen people who are against Paul, who have selfish ambitions and vain conceit, as we'll see next week. Oh, sorry, the week after that. There is opposition. And Paul says that if we are going to be a steadfast church that magnifies Christ and is worthy of the gospel, it has to be grounded in unity. And the unity described here is being of one spirit, one mind. It's a united focus. It's a focus on this one truth that I sp spoke about earlier, that Christ is our life. Christ is our life, that we live to magnify Christ personally and corporately. Paul says that the church's manner of life is to be worthy of the gospel because it's the gospel that unites us. It unites us to God. It unites us to one another. It breaks down all social strata, gender, ethnic barriers. They've been brought low and we've been made one person in Christ, the people of God. We've been bought by the same precious blood of Christ. And now we are accepted through the gospel of grace and united in him. But it's not just a unity that, that we sit around a campfire and sing together. This is a unity that requires action. It's a striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's a picture of us all linking arms, united, standing firm for the faith of the gospel. 
what we believe, what we proclaim, what we are united through, the gospel itself. And each of us has a very important role in keeping the unity of the church. It's a precious gift, something that we should fight for. In other parts of scripture, it says, make every effort to keep the unity, the bond of peace. And this unity in this text sends a message to the world. The world will see a church standing for Jesus, standing for eternal things, possibly enduring worldly loss and disrepute for the greater gains of magnifying Christ and living for his glory. And unity also sends a message to us as his people. It's a message of salvation. A united church is a picture of what is to come, a great salvation, which will be fully realized when all people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered, united to magnify Christ, the glorious Lamb who was slain. Be united, Paul says. And I want to end the sermon today by focusing on what our means are for living for Christ in this manner, where our life is characterized by fruitful service, by advancing the gospel in ministry, in mission, in our manner of life. And it is Christ. He is the one who animates and sustains this kind of living. Think of this. Paul is only able to be joyful and see Christ as his life and death as gain because Christ has done a deep and powerful work in his heart. Paul has been given a gift that so many of us here have been given. It's the gift of faith. Verse 29 says, For it has been granted to you, it has been given to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Two gifts have been given to us. The first gift is the gift of faith for salvation. And this gift of faith is given that we may come to know Jesus, that we may have him residing in us through the power of the Holy Spirit to help us and sustain us, that we may magnify him in all circumstances and even suffering, which is the second gift. Even suffering for Christ's sake is a gift for us. And you probably haven't thought of that. Well, here it is in Scripture, suffering. The one thing Jesus was most acquainted with is given to us as a gift. We can speak about this for a long time. But in summary, we know that Jesus, the one who suffered for us, is one who is near us in our suffering. He is one who sympathizes with us in our suffering. He is present with us. And this is shown so vividly in Paul's circumstances that Paul, even in the midst of such danger and difficulty, he was able to magnify Jesus in fruitful service by advancing the gospel in mission, in ministry, in manner of life. Because to him, Christ was his life. And ECP, can we unite on the same glorious truth that for us to live is Christ? I'll leave us with that. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our hope in life and death. We sing a song that speaks these truths so many times. Father, let it not just be lip service. But Father, come and do a deep work in our hearts today by your Spirit. Help us to really consider our own life. What do we insert into the blank for me to live is? 
Is it Christ? Is our life wrapped around him? Is it centered around the glory and magnification of who he is? Lord, I pray, do a work in each and every one of us so that that would become more and more true for each of us. That we would magnify Christ in all the fruitful service that we give to you, to your people, in love, in response to your great service to us. In all the advancement of the gospel, in our mission, in our ministry, in our manner of life. Be glorified. Be magnified. Above all things, we pray. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.